What makes a great leader great? How do we create a high-performing team? And when we say leader, we mean everyone, because everyone is leading their own life. Will yours be a life by design or a life by default? Those are the big questions, and this podcast will answer them. Welcome to the Becoming Your Best podcast, where we help you apply the 12 principles of highly successful leaders, because great leaders will produce great results. Welcome to all of our Becoming Your Best podcast listeners, wherever you may be in the world today. This is your host, Steve Schallenberger, and we have a brilliant guest with us today, the creator of Brand Sort. She developed the popular message, architectural-driven approach to content strategy. So this is going to be fun for all of us. All of us are really concerned about expanding the awareness of our brand, whether that brand is a, a team, a company, a product, a service, or even your own family. So this is going to be fun because it really stretches across all of that. And Margot teaches in the Content Strategy Graduate Program at F.H. Jonam University in Graz, Austria, and lectures around the world about brand-driven content strategy and designing for trust. So welcome, Margot. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're looking forward to this. And before we get started, I'd like to tell you just a little bit more about Margot. She's one of the leading voices in content strategy and in this whole industry. She's the author of Trustworthy, How the Smartest Brands Beat Cynicism and Bridge the Trust Gap in Content Strategy at Work. Real world stories that strengthen every interactive project, as well as the principle of Appropriate Inc., which is a brand and content strategy consultancy based in Boston, where Margot lives. And as a speaker and strategic advisor, she's worked with marketing teams and a range of leading organizations over the past two decades. So let's rock and roll here, Margot. You ready? Yeah, let's do this. All righty. Well, tell us about your background, including any turning points in, in your life that's had a significant impact on you and how did you end up where you are today? <laughs> um, well, uh, I, I guess like most of your guests, I was born at a very young age. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm originally from upstate New York. And then in college, I decided to study design, communication design, graphic design, kind of more visual communication, and had the, uh, I guess, the opportunity and challenge of graduating at the height of the dot-com boom and bust when the economy was doing really well and then it wasn't in the late 90s. And that was a, that was an interesting time. I was looking at, at opportunities in what was then the emerging web industry and wanted to do things with design, with the things that I had been studying around how people work with things, how, how organizations communicate with people. And a lot of the questions that I was asking as I was going through the interview process with different web agencies, those questions were really more around content and verbal communication. I didn't know that at the time, but it was in the course of the interview process that finally someone said to me, like, you know, the questions you're asking are great, but that's not what our team focuses on. You should really talk to someone in content strategy, which at the time was a, a relatively new field. It was kind of the term that we were using for 
this glorified copywriting where it met technical writing. It was before the era of maybe using content management systems and whatnot to mm-hmm. to organize the information that, that comes through on a website. And it was certainly before many big companies were thinking about how they would use the web in a more interactive and transactional way. I think for most companies, they looked at the web as a new venue for brochureware, where they would kind of take the same stuff that they'd been publishing in brochures and in print collateral and and just throw it up on a website. And I joined a team that looked at how we could go beyond that, how we could how we could help brands and retailers and big companies in healthcare and software and financial services engage in a more meaningful way with their audiences, with the customers that they were hoping to engage or serve. And through that process of looking at at better ways that they could communicate, not just say what they wanted to say about themselves, but also figure out what their audiences needed to hear, what, what sort of information they needed to make good decisions. That's, I think, where the where the web started to mature in a lot of ways. And then over the over the past two decades, as we've kind of expanded what online communication means, whether that is through social media, through um, through different types of transactions and shopping online, how we manage our money online, how we manage our healthcare online. Content strategy has been an aspect of that, and and I've been happy to to kind of help drive that that all forward. I was at that first agency a couple of years, then went in house at a corporation for about a year, and we should talk more about that. And then went into a couple other agencies, and then went out on my own in 2010, incorporated my company then, and then have been independent since then, uh, looking at how organizations communicate, how I partner with them to help improve their communication with different audiences and what it means to focus on brand-driven content strategy, where we're not just meeting the needs of our audiences, but also not losing ourselves, not losing our organizations in that process either. Oh, that is a great background. Thank you. That was terrific (laughs) and so much experience. (laughs) And you've had a chance to think about this in a lot of different ways and have a lot of experience, don't you? I mean, a lot of different ways. I, I think as far as the experience, yeah, doing this in a field that has continued to grow has been humbling because I think so much of what I knew or thought I knew starting out maybe is still valid, but I'm always getting to test my ideas and then also discovering that there is so much more that I don't know, whether it's about my clients' specific industries or about the expectations that that people bring to communication and and the needs of people. I guess I'm always kind of growing that denominator, always, always learning, you know, just how much I don't know. So the, that has been a wonderful experience in and of itself. Oh, great. Well, I can think of a few subjects that are more relevant to many of our listeners and clients, I might add, of becoming your best. As you were speaking, I was just kind of thinking through each one, whether it's an energy company, a services company, a fitness company, HR company, contractor, architectural firm, a retailer. You just kind of start thinking through all these different uh, industries. Every single one, this is important to. Uh, It's kind of their baby, you know, it's close to their heart, their brand and how they communicate it and and the challenge of how do I get the word out, right? So shall we talk about this? Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so how can brands use 
voice and, and volume and vulnerability to bring people closer and then drive brand engagement? How does this best happen? Well, those those qualities that you're describing, that's really the, the central framework for the, the book that just came out. So in March, my second book, Trustworthy, came out. And the the issues that I was wrangling with in that were that we live in a state right now in, in a time of heightened cynicism. People don't believe things on first blush. They think that everybody's out to make a sale. Um, all politicians lie. Can't trust any business. You got to do your own research. Don't don't trust anything that you read. And that mm. level of cynicism undermines any kind of marketing that a business would attempt to do. Anytime your company is trying to share your expertise, anytime you're trying to say, you know, based on my years of experience in the industry, this is what I'm recommending to my customers, or or you should take these things into account when you're thinking about purchasing something. Anytime a business is trying to engage in that way and share that expertise, even if it's to try to help people better help themselves, right now you're facing a big wall. A lot of people put up this this cynical wall, maybe it's to protect themselves of saying, you know, I everybody's out to get you. Can't believe anything that you hear. So many companies have lied to us or or have been inconsistent with what they promise. People get cynical. And I think it's a form of protection. But when we get cynical, that's when those conversations stop. That's when people wall themselves off to new information, whether it's coming from a business or the government or from their healthcare provider. Again, even if it's something that they can use to better access services or or better take care of themselves and their families. And I think that we're in a unique space right now, marketers and businesses and anybody attempting to sell or persuade or, or even political candidates. We have the responsibility and opportunity right now to help break through some of that cynicism to help rebuild the the confidence of our audiences so that we can rebuild their trust in themselves and their ability to take in new information and understand it and wrangle with it, as well as then our organizations. The framework that I present in Trustworthy that I discovered after interviewing brand after brand, whether they were CMOs or creative directors or copywriters in those organizations, The framework that I present draws on the patterns that I heard from those interviews that focus on voice, volume, and vulnerability. So what's the backstory on the book? Love to hear about that. Tell us a little about the book. And I definitely want to get back right to where you're going because we live in a different world today. I do think that you're right. Cynicism, people are far more cautious because... They have more messages and impressions coming to them every day from so many different places. And you have artificial intelligence that's tracking their preferences. And so people do have their guard up. So I want to come back and talk about that, but love to hear about the background of the book. Sure. Yeah. And I didn't mean to bury the lead there either. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, so probably starting around uh, five, six years ago, I was noticing how Things were changing in politics and how the media covered politics and politicians. So Mm. a couple election cycles ago now, it seemed like politicians (laughs) on both sides of the aisle were playing fast and loose with the truth. The media was covering it in a different way. And also people in their audiences were kind of responding in a different way. Because it used to be that if the media caught a politician in a lie, 
that would scuttle their campaign. That's that's what happened to to Richard Nixon, to Gary Hart. We've kind of seen the story before that when the media catches a politician lying, maybe they're they're changing their record or in this case saying like I did support the Iraq war. I did and then kind of changing their perspective on that or mm-hmm. or maybe on their their previous support for for abortion rights. But then when they change that, it used to be that people would would say, hey, you lied. You're a flip flopper. I'm going to support the other candidate now. That wasn't happening, though. People that considered themselves Trump supporters did throughout the length of his campaign. People that considered themselves Clinton supporters did throughout the length of her campaign. And no new information ever seemed to disrupt that support. And I was discovering that, oh, this was coming down less to ideology and more to cultural identity. If you saw yourselves as a Trump voter or as an environmentalist or someone that is an anti-vaxxer or as somebody that that has a certain political persuasion, very little can disrupt that. Hmm. And people wall themselves off to new information in a culture that says you don't need to get new information. And when they hear from politicians that are gaslighting them and from media outlets that are gaslighting them and saying, you don't need new information, just trust me. I'm the only source of truth. Don't believe the evidence of your own eyes or lived experience. And that's a problem because when people don't hold themselves open to new ideas and new information, then they kind of stop growing. And also any kind of marketing falls flat. Sales cycles take longer. It's bad for our society. It's bad for public discourse and it's bad for our economy. So there are a lot of problems with that. And Mind you, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with being skeptical of information, of saying, "Mm, I don't believe this on first blush. Let me continue to gather information from high quality information sources and kind of test it against what I already know. That's how, how we improve our thinking and the quality of our thoughts and beliefs and practices. I don't have a problem with that. I do have a problem when when people wall themselves off. And the problem that I have is that as a consultant, most of my clients, I wondered, would they face this problem as well? Because I don't work with organizations largely in the political arena. My clients include folks that you've probably heard of in in financial services and healthcare and software and, and higher education. And I wondered if it was going to be a problem for them. And it turns out that issue that I was noticing five, six years ago continued to be an issue. We have become a more cynical society over time. Gaslighting has had effects far beyond just the political arena. Mm -hmm. So I wondered, as people have kind of pulled back, because at the same time, following all this, we've seen how, how people have pulled away from traditional sources of expertise. They've turned instead to their filter bubbles and their echo chambers on social media, only to realize that, okay, a lot of those filter bubbles are faulty, too. We've got the not-so-neutral algorithm of Facebook telling us what news story to check out next or what the trending topics are in, in the case of Twitter. And when we when we become more aware of those filter bubbles, that's when people turn further inward and say, well, I can't trust anybody. I'm just going to go with my gut. That's when we see problems with, with the rise of science savants on Instagram that are simply getting their, their scientific information from Instagram posts. And the dangers of that when people say, I'm going to just go with my gut, what feels right probably is what is right, is that they miss out. They miss out on 
the discourse with experts from getting their information from high-quality resources, and that can be dangerous. We've seen the effects of that on public health and on vaccination and, and on things like saving and spending on education. So there are a lot of problems that result from cynicism. And I wondered if that was going to affect my clients. It turns out it does affect my clients. So I wanted to dig in more to figure out, well, what can we do about it? The people that I engage with that are marketers and designers and writers, copywriters and whatnot, folks that work in social media, can we do something to affect this? Turns out we can. And this is not one of those cases where design or branding can save the world, but it does not mean that we are freed of the obligation to try either. People that work in these industries, we oftentimes pay attention to user experience. We can focus on how we empower people to better access information, to engage in research in a smart and thoughtful way so that they can become more empowered consumers. And I think that is the real opportunity and responsibility right now for for modern marketing and businesses that engage in marketing to be not just an economic force, to not just pay attention to their own bottom line, but to be a force for good in society and help empower people help them move from a a place of cynicism instead to a place of hope and renew their sense of of trust and confidence in themselves and their ability to gain information and to become smarter, as well as then in the organizations that enable them to to become smarter and, and more savvy consumers of information. That research, the interviews that I conducted with with dozens of different organizations from America's Test Kitchen and Crutchfield Electronics, the FBI, um, Love Honey, folks at Zoom and um, local elections bureaus. All those interviews led to the framework um, and the examples in Trustworthy. Okay, that is a good background. I'm glad that you shared that. Now, let's get back (laughs) to what we're talking about. We've got so much to cover and only about 10 or 11 minutes left, so let's crank her up here. <laughs> it's been good. Yeah, let me just say this, that I'm just thinking about all the people we work with and just thinking about the business climate. They're, you know, they have great products, great services, so they're honorable, and yet you have the critical people are, have some cynicism about just any message. So how do we use uh, voice volume, vulnerability, and and your experience to overcome that barrier is people that have really great products, but how do they get over that? So I think focusing on on those three Vs, I guess, the voice, volume, and vulnerability, that's what helps us build trust. That's what helps us build trust between our brands and our audiences so that they are more open and receptive to our ideas and products and whatnot. And that's also what helps us rebuild their their confidence in themselves as smart consumers. Because until people believe that, they're kind of at the mercy of the wind and they won't necessarily make purchasing decisions. They won't necessarily move forward and make decisions and feel good about the decisions that they make. So the first section of the book, Voice, focuses on how you develop a a consistent and familiar dialogue with your audience. And I mean voice visually as well as verbally. So how do you develop a, a consistent look and feel? How do you develop consistent verbal branding as well from your editorial style and tone of voice? And maybe how do you use jargon in a good way too to educate your audience, to not dumb things down for them? 
but to help make them smarter and more savvy. And I look at bringing that back to the idea of how your organization develops a message architecture or a hierarchy of communication goals so that you know, is it most important for us to to look and sound innovative or to look and sound maybe traditional and reliable or or, cra- or scrappy and creative? Figuring that out helps guide all of your other decisions around how you should look and sound and And for that matter, even what platforms you should prioritize, if you should have a big presence on Twitter, if you should be using live chat, if you should be writing and publishing white papers or blog posts, all those types of things. Because I think most people that do engage in marketing and branding realize that there are so many things you can do, so many platforms on which you can engage. You can't possibly be everywhere all at once. That way lies madness and you wouldn't want to be either. So in the second section of the book, in volume, I look at, well, how much do you need to tell your audience to get them to trust you? And this gets back to that central idea of, well, do people read online? Do they not read online? How long should an article or a blog post be? How frequently should you be tweeting? How many images do you need in an image gallery? Do you want to be short and sweet, like one of the examples that I share from from the British government? Or do you need to be really, really verbose and detailed and nuanced, like some of the examples that I share from Crutchfield Electronics? And it turns out there is no one right answer, but you can still measure the impact of how much your organization is saying and determining if it's the right amount based on things like the rate of product returns, the amount of time people spend on the phone with customer service. And even in things like really basic, easy user research. So that idea of how much should you say comes down to, well, how much do you need to help people make good decisions and then feel good about the decisions they make? And those are entirely quantitative things that we can measure and and every organization should. The third section on vulnerability, that's where we dig into how you build trust, either by engaging in the risk of being authentic, being transparent, showing your audience who you really are and making your values visible. In some organizations, that is tough and scary and they worry about alienating some customers. But we talk about good ways to do that. And I share examples like from Penzi's Spices, big spice rate retailer based in, in Wisconsin. They've been very public about their values. They, they've taken to Facebook written really long posts about their political views, and they've lost customers over that. They've gained a lot of headlines over that. And as a result, they've actually expanded their customer base. Even with losing some customers, they've now reached a much broader audience that says, ah, if these are your values, these values resonate with me too. And I may not be a home chef that's looking to buy a lot of spices, but I have friends that are and family that are, and I need to buy them birthday and Christmas presents and whatnot. So we look at vulnerability from that angle, as well as the angle of vulnerability of what happens when your organization screws up, when you have to apologize. What does it mean to have that public reckoning, whether you're engaging in social issues only to realize that those are issues in your company as well, or just, you know, the CEO has messed up. How do you now apologize in a way that acknowledges the problem, is transparent about what you're going to do to improve things moving forward, and holds you accountable to a resolution. Really, that that level of organizational repentance that, that so many people do look for in society today. 
So we look at it from those three facets of voice, volume, and vulnerability to look at how businesses have a tremendous opportunity right now to to engage their audiences, rebuild confidence, pull them closer to create greater customer loyalty, and ultimately rebuild their very ability to trust. Uh, is there a way, uh, Margo, to for marketers, companies, leaders, managers, to measure how effective they are right now with voice volume and vulnerability versus where they they want to implement a strategy to get to a better place, to bring their people closer together and drive their brand engagement? Yeah, so I would say things like voice and volume, you can measure the your efficacy there when you look at the types of questions that your audience is asking, whether you're doing kind of a, a ride along and listening into customer support calls or looking at the kinds of topics that that people are are searching for on your site. If you've suddenly gone through a process of maybe reorganizing information on your site, recategorizing, relabeling things, first, I would say if you're considering doing that right now, don't. Now is the time for consistency, not for big change, because we are in an era of tremendous change and tremendous social upheaval, and your audience doesn't need that from you too. But if you have already gone through that type of change, look at the kinds of ways that people are searching for information. Are they on board with the labels that you're using, or are they using old terminology? Are they asking questions where you feel like, well, the answers are right in front of you if you only spoke the same language? Or or is it clear that you're speaking their language? They understand the terminology. They know who you are based on the, the kinds of information they're looking for from you. So I think that's one way to, to get at that, that information. Listen to the types of questions people are asking either on the phone or through live chat or, or through on-site searches. As far as knowing if you're offering the right volume of information, I would say look at how long it takes people to make decisions and then look at the impact of those decisions. If you see that there's a really high rate of product returns on your site, it's likely because people didn't have enough information to make a decision when they were putting the product into their shopping cart or they didn't have the right information. Mm -hmm. If they get the product and they say, well, this this doesn't look how I thought it was going to look. Maybe it means you need more images or more accurate images of the product. Or if if they get it and realize that mm, this, this doesn't have the features that I wanted, well, then clearly the features weren't spelled out in in the right level of detail. So yeah, Margot, can... I've got a question on that. Would the converse be true as well? If you have very low return rate, high satisfaction rates, does that mean you're close to communicating it the right way? It, yeah, it means that your communication is effective. If people get it the first time, if you set them up for success, then you know you're doing that right. The communication leading to that point has been correct as well. Okay, so I've got two more quick questions. <laughs> oh, my heavens. We're at the end of this already. How can brands double down on qualities that make them unique? And I will try to have quick answers. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think when you look at what makes your organization unique, sometimes there's this fear of, well, what are our competitors doing? Should we be doing that? Should we be those things too? If our competitors are are really innovative and, and they get attention for that. Not every organization needs to be exactly like every other organization in your industry. And I'd say it's the things that make you distinct 
that help your audience find you and say, that's the right brand for me. When when Penzies goes public with their with, with their politics, it helps their audience find them and say, that's what I want. That's me too. And I believe it was from the last Edelman Trust Survey that came out just last month, something like 68% of American consumers do want to vote with their dollars. They they do want to know the political persuasions and values of the organizations in their lives. They want CEOs to speak out about social issues. So I think to double down on the qualities that make you unique, first figure out what those qualities are. I, I'll oftentimes lead my clients in an exercise just to develop a message architecture to say who we are, who we're not, and who we'd like to be. And the who we're not, those are qualities that better describe a competitor that aren't our concern anyhow. And then we just look at, well, who are we in the hearts and minds of our target audience? And who do we want to be? What are the more aspirational qualities? And then finally, how do we prioritize those aspirational qualities? I think going through an exercise like that, that can be so simple and only takes a couple hours, has such a huge impact then on all of your other decisions around what you say, where you say it how frequently you say it and how. Okay, good. All right. Well, any final tips that you'd like to leave with our listeners today, Margo? As I said, right now, we're in a time of such tremendous upheaval. I think the best thing that brands can do, regardless of your size or industry or scope or budget, is to stay the course. Don't don't offer big change. Don't demand that your audience embrace big change right now, but offer them the comfort of consistency. And the other thing I think that you can offer that that makes a huge impact is embrace vulnerability. That's it's not a weakness. It's a strength to admit what you don't know, what your organization's still trying to figure out. Right now, if it's in the middle of the pandemic and you're trying to figure out what does it look like for for you to reopen or for employees to go back to work, it's fine to say, here's what we know, here's what we don't know, but here's what we're doing to figure it out. I think that message, that's how we really embrace this idea that we're all in it together, to say that things are changing and we can be comfortable with a level of uncertainty as long as we have a path through it together. Awesome. Okay, so how can people find out about what you're doing, Margo? Well, you can find Trustworthy everywhere books are sold. Definitely a good idea always to support your your local small independent bookseller, but you can find it everywhere. And uh, you can find me online on Twitter at mbloomstein or uh, my website is appropriateinc.com. Okay. You want to repeat that one more time so we're sure they get it? Sure. Yeah. So trustworthy. Find it everywhere you like to shop for books. Find me on Twitter at mbloomstein. And my website is appropriateinc. That's I-N-C, like incorporated, because I love the double entendre. Find me at appropriateinc.com. Perfect. Well, thanks so much, Margo, for being part of this show today. We've had some great ideas. We really appreciate you being with us. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Yeah, it was for for me as well. And to all of our listeners, never forget, you are making a difference every single day in your life. And we wish you all the best. This is Steve Schallenberger with Becoming Your Best Global Leadership, signing off until the next time. Thank you for listening. Would you like help to apply the 12 principles of highly successful leaders in your life, in your family, or in your organization? Call us today at 888-690-8764 to speak with a helpful representative to evaluate your situation 
and how we can help. Or you can visit becomingyourbest.com. Whether it's a corporate training event, keynote, workshop, trainer certification, or personal coaching, it would be our pleasure to serve your needs. Once again, call 888-690-8764 or visit becomingyourbest.com today.